You know, apparently there is a young Jewish rabbi in Jerusalem uh, in these days that is a ninja with the Torah, uh, just um, teaching from it with amazing insight and is supposedly performing miracles. And there are groups of people that are saying, asking, could this be our Messiah? Could this be the one that has come to reign? Today with video editing and fake news and such, it's, it's, it's hard to tell what's really happening, to tell you the truth. I mean, with the internet, you can find a small group of people around the world, you know, massing to thousands even, that agree with a certain viewpoint and that are teaching a certain idea. It's comforting to have, though, the timeless truth of Scripture to run everything through, to run everything by. It's not the new ideas that matter most. It's the old ideas that stand the test of time in reality. There were those even uh, before Jesus' coming that claimed to be the Messiah. At one point in the Gospels, uh, one of, uh, I think it's Gamaliel, lists off men that came onto the scene and, and claimed to be the Messiah and had a following and then dwindled out. And Jesus warned his followers and us that those there would be those that would come and that would claim to be him or some other savior. It's pretty hard to compete, though, with the the one that died and rose again and whose teaching is still relevant and whose spirit indwells his followers, that being Jesus, our one and only savior. So if you're trying to decide, though, between two people's claims... What you would want is an eyewitness. You'd want someone that could say, I was there. I saw everything that this person did. I can can give credit to them for these miracles. I I can share with you that, yes, this is what they claimed. Yes, these were their credentials. And if you're trying to decide who's telling the truth... Between two people that are claiming this, you, you'd probably side with the person that has more witnesses. That has more people that were, were able to look at their life from their perspective. And maybe even were observing and giving witness to a different aspect that they saw that were still in agreement with the other witnesses. If you're deciding if someone should be the be-all, end-all, servant, king, God-man, you'd want accurate, multiple witnesses to their claims and to their credentials. You're going to want to hear about the signs of their power that they displayed. That's why we have the four Gospels, four witnesses to the power, to the claims, to the credentials of Jesus as our Savior. John shows specifically how Jesus is God. Luke shows specifically how Jesus is man. 
And Mark shows specifically how Jesus came to serve. And Matthew shows that he is king. So we are going to be moving through the book of Matthew during this season. And 28 chapters, it's going to be a long season. But we might take breaks and go somewhere else for a while. But I think it's appropriate that we're beginning our journey through the book of Matthew with his coming. And we look at this morning to behold our king, and it's specifically our king's right to his throne. Behold our king's right to his throne. Think about what we're claiming about Jesus during the Christmas season, right? In the carols that we sing, we are claiming that Jesus is Lord of all. We claim that he is going to be coming to bring joy to the world. The the, the carol joy to the world is actually looking ahead to Jesus' second coming. Let the earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, just as he has gone to prepare a room for his followers. Let heaven and nature sing. And as we proclaim that his kingly rule is the answer to all of the earth's problems, we sing joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Creation itself is groaning, waiting for the revealing of its Savior. We also expect that all of the nations of the earth should serve him and work according to his values. As we sing, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. All of these expectations are wrapped up in the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. And in a very Jewish way, it explains all of these expectations with the credentials of Jesus' right to the throne of David as the son of David. Or is Jesus' right to being the ruler of the people of Abraham as the son of Abraham. And so the book of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we begin with Matthew 1 verse 1 reading, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very appropriate, I think, that we look at here this morning, having just finished looking at the life of Abraham and specifically God's interactions with him as the friend of God. And here we pick up with Jesus as the son of Abraham. And we read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, 
and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, if you notice, just just ask yourself, where is the verb in this run-on sentence? The verb is just was. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And the continuation is basically, and he was the father of, and he was the father of, and he was the father of. So, so it just is saying Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob. Abraham was the father of all of these people listed. And, and we continue on. So he, he kind of lands on David the king. And then we see, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim. I'm sorry, Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, you might have noticed that every now and then, these names are broken up by the name of a wife or of a woman. There's five women listed here in the genealogy, and there's a little bit of information given with each one of them. Rahab and Ruth, specifically, are Gentiles that convert to Judaism before marrying into the Davidic line and then going on to, to give birth to the next in the line to the Messiah. Rahab, Tamar, and Bathsheba are known in their stories that come up in the Old Testament specifically for immorality. Rahab having been a prostitute and, and Tamar having been um, one who has to lay her claim to children through immorality and, and Bathsheba being the wife of Uriah that, that has Solomon eventually with David but, but originally becomes married to David through adultery and murder. I appreciate what the ESV study Bible says. The lineage is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles and Jesus will be Savior of all. Then we have some interesting verses from verse 12 through 16 that I'll revisit at the end of the message here. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim. And Achim was the father of Elihud. And Elihud was the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer was the father of Matham. And Matham was the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Joseph, I'm sorry, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, spoiler alert here. Next week, 
we'll get into why it is that it doesn't say Jesus was the or Joseph was the father of Jesus. But if you're probably aware, he wasn't the father of Jesus. The Holy Spirit caused the conception of Jesus within Mary. So we see listed here that Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then verse 17 closes up this chapter. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, who is the Christ being his title, the anointed one, the Messiah, 14 generations. Honestly, I don't know why Matthew points out the 14 generations. He leaves out a person or two, which is, is normal and customary in the uh, Jewish way of giving genealogies to make a point, which I'm, there's a lot of different theories on what point Matthew is making with the 14 generations. I'm not into numbers and stuff, um, but uh, you can look up some of those different theories if you'd like. But he actually, uh, so we don't really, I don't really understand the point he's making by pointing out the 14 generations. If you count them up, it's actually different than the 14. It's not a mistake, it's just a Jewish way of doing things. But I do want to let get to what I believe God is communicating from these this early chapter of Matthew. To behold our king. Notice what's pointed out in verse 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The theme of Matthew is really introduced here. Matthew's gospel is written to witness to the fact that Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah. Jesus is shown to be the one who's to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He's presented as the prophesied fulfillment of God's promise of deliverance of Jew and Gentile alike. Matthew seeks to show how all God's purposes come into fulfillment in Jesus. He shows how the Old Testament points forward to him, fulfilling the law in his teaching, as we will see in our time throughout Matthew, and how history revolves around Jesus. His coming is the turning point where the age of preparation gives way to the age of fulfillment. God's kingdom is a major theme in the book of Matthew. As I mentioned, Matthew gives the perspective affirming and confirming and giving witness to Jesus as king. In this gospel, Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God almost 40 times. The New Testament commentary says the mission of Jesus was to establish God's kingship. The phrase kingdom of God therefore points not to a specific situation or event, but to God in control with all the breadth and meaning that that phrase could cover. When the parables of Matthew 13 tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like, they are depicting what happens when God has his way, when his will is done. And his purpose is fulfilled, end quote. I don't know if you caught the news in Germany this past week, but on December 7th, 
a whole host of people were arrested because there's a man named Heinrich the 13th prince of the house of Rus. He's one of the last descendants, I guess, of a dynasty that once ruled over swaths of eastern Germany. He's a real estate developer, and, he's, and for years he has publicly advocated the theory that life was much better worldwide under monarchies. We, I seem to believe we had a revolutionary war that uh, was of a different opinion of that. But So he was arrested, suspected of... of of trying to become the country's new dictator through a violent coup to overturn the, the democratic process and government of Germany. The House of Roos called him a confused man peddling conspiracy theories. But if you woke up this morning and you were one of the close allies of Heinrich the Thirteenth, you probably woke up in a jail, jail cell. And if you'd say, I'd like to appeal to King Heinrich, it would not have helped your case at all. But we truly worship the King of all kings. If you know Christ as your Savior, you woke up this morning with a king that is at the helm, on his throne, ruling this world seen and more importantly, unseen. We can trust that he requires no coup to take power. He doesn't have to coordinate his return. Instead, he is ruling his kingdom simply in a realm that cannot be seen but is no less real. We're, on, we're going to understand better through our time in Matthew what is meant by the kingdom of God is at hand. What does a king need? Well, first of all, he needs a people to rule over. Heinrich the 13th thought maybe he was getting to enough of a tipping point with enough people that can be on his side. Well, King Jesus has a people that he is still accumulating that outnumbers the grains of sand on the seashore and the number of stars in the night sky because it fulfills the promise to Abraham. We've been learning over the past few weeks about how God created a people for himself. He called out one man named Abraham and chose to bless him with a relationship and with descendants. And this morning, I want to encourage you, behold our king, the son of Abraham. Recall what God promised Abraham as we just studied last week in Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So now he's talking about a single offspring. And your offspring shall Shall And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We read from Galatians that Jesus is that offspring that God foretold would possess his enemies' gates. We read in Galatians 3.16, Now the promise, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul goes on to say, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
He's told he, this Christ will, will possess the gates of his enemies. Back in week two of the NFL season, Aaron Rodgers uh, scored the final touchdown against the Chicago Bears. And apparently there had been quite a dust up in the, in the social media and stuff leading up to the game. And he was so pumped that Aaron Rodgers, as he runs through the, the end zone, looking up at the Bears fans at Soldier Field, looks at them and says, I own you. Of course, three weeks later, he broke his thumb and it absolutely tanked the Packers' season. But in a sense, that's what's being said here. That Jesus can go to any place in the universe where his enemies reside, heaven or hell, and say, I own this place. I own you. Possessing the gates of his enemies. And I would only assume that it would mean that he can come and go as he pleases. Those enemies include the greatest enemy. The serpent whose head Jesus would one day crush. Whom Abraham would have understood this is the Messiah that is coming. That, promise, that God had promised Adam and Eve would one day come. Galatians 3.7 tells us that it is us who have faith in Christ for our salvation. In his death and his resurrection that are true descendants of Abraham. That's what Galatians 3.7 tells us. You know, an ex-boyfriend that might be a little sick of his ex-girlfriend or done with the whole situation, he might say she thinks she's God's gift to man. Right? Or she might say he thinks he's God's gift to women. This, it usually means the person is incredibly prideful, that the world should be grateful to them, that see them as a gift But as the promised offspring of Abraham, Jesus is truly God's gift to mankind. Through whom every nation, every people, every family of the earth could be blessed. Through receiving him for the king as he is, as their savior. So in a sense, Jesus, being the son of Abraham, looks back. And is being the fulfillment of why Abraham's descendants are special to God and what they were looking ahead to. But Jesus, being the son of David, looks ahead to the throne that he will occupy for all of eternity. So I challenge you here this morning, behold our king, the son of David. Son of David is one of Jesus' most distinct titles. In the book of Matthew, we'll see him called this nine times. And it happens a little bit in uh, Mark and Luke, but nowhere else in the New Testament. The title points to Jesus being the king from the line of David that would one day rule the world from Israel forever. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David, among other things, that one day his kingdom would be established forever and that one day one of his descendants would sit on his throne and never be removed you know you got to be able to live forever if that's the case 
Psalm 89 recalls the promise that Jesus fulfills in the promised offspring of David. Where you can read in Psalm 89 verses 3 through 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then he says in verse 36 and 37, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. You know, one of Sandra Wilson's sons just retired recently from serving as a Navy SEAL, Brian And I remember talking to him one time when he was visiting, and I thanked him. And I told him something that I had heard somewhere else, of course. I I thanked him and I said, you do unusual and abnormal and sometimes what can seem like horrific things in some dark parts of the world so that we can live usual, normal and peaceful lives. And thanked him for that. You know, when Brian would deploy, he would have a seat at home at the table. And it's not like they would say, well, he's gone. What if he's never going to come back? We should just, you know, take that seat away. No. It would sit there, and I'm sure it would wait for him to return. So he could sit in that seat at the table Again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus declares himself to be the king that will sit on David's throne again. And when he sits there, he will never be dethroned. He tells us of how the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is truly at work and how it works. And we'll see that over and over again. In many ways, The Gospel of Matthew, to me, is like Jesus' systematic theology of the kingdom of heaven that we need to be reassured over and over again, oh, this is how the universe actually works. Then Jesus left our world but is still reigning and at work in his truer eternal kingdom, truer than the kingdoms that we see on this earth right now. But he will step back into our visual world again to take the supreme seat and never surrender it. So we're told in verse 1 that this is about Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let me ask you this. What about verse 12 and following? Why wouldn't we be told that Jesus is the son of Jeconiah? I mean, right? Did you notice that about these sections? You know, it starts out saying the son of David, the son of, I'm sorry, the son of Abraham. Nope, son of David, son of Abraham. And then the sections are, this is the sons of Abraham, and that leads up to David our king. And then it says, and then the son of David, and that leads up to Jeconiah. And he talks about the deportation, but I don't know if that's really the point. And then he says, and and then the sons of Jeconiah to Joseph, husband of Mary, Mother of Christ. Jeconiah was not a good dude. All right? Jeconiah was cursed. 
as a king, he was, uh, had a very short reign, and it wasn't good. And in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, you can read, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. It says that about Jeconiah. I think, here's my, this is the theory that I appreciate most. And I think this is why Matthew brings him up. It's like, full disclosure, Jeconiah's in this list. So while Jesus has legal right to the throne by Israel's standards through Joseph, he could not take the throne through Joseph. But he didn't come through Joseph, did he? He's not an offspring of Joseph, although he has his legal right to the throne through Joseph. But in Luke 3, we have a different genealogy that comes through David and then comes to, instead of listing off how the son of David is Solomon, it lists off the son of David, Nathan. And it trails that way, and I believe it's the genealogy of Mary. So Jesus has claim to the throne, one legally through Joseph, which went through Jeconiah, which he can't take the throne by that means, but in Luke 3 is listed off as his bloodline connection to David through Mary. If God can be trusted to plan for his son's coming for thousands of years, if he can be trusted to plan for him to be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, a legally a descendant of Jeconiah, and genetically a descendant with not going through Jeconiah, if he can plan for a, a poor man and woman that could both trace their lines back to David, And if God could take the form of an embryo to come and set us free from sin and death, don't you think that you can trust him? That you can trust him with your short life and look ahead to the eternal life that he offers freely in his son Jesus? You can. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I'm sure with families as we make plans for who's going to be where, when, as there's potential for, for people to be disappointed, as there's potential for people to, to remember the loss that they've experienced since a Christmas in recent past. As there's all the opportunity for pain amidst the celebration. As there's also the opportunity to feel alone even amidst the crowds. Lord, we thank you so much that you were making plans when, when the world didn't even know it was needed. That you were laying out your designs for thousands of years perfectly for celebrations that 
that weren't even in our thoughts. We thank you, Father, that you are at work to bring your son once again, to bring all things to their intended purpose. We thank you, Lord God, that that we can trust you amidst everything that maybe isn't exactly as we would design it. We thank you for this season. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for making him our perfect Savior. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.